You were supposed to be in Istanbul last night. I'm afraid this unfortunate lighter business has uh, clouded your judgment. You have a job to do. I expect you're on a plane this afternoon. I haven't finished here, sir. Leave it to the Americans. It's their mess. Let them clear it up. Sir, they're not going to do anything. I owe it to Lighter. He's put his life on the line for me many times. Oh, spare me this sentimental rubbish. He knew the risks. And his wife? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment. And I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, double seven. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. And I require you to hand over your weapon. Now. I need hardly remind you that you're still bound by the Official Secrets Act. I guess it's... Uh, a farewell to arms. License to kill. Anyone who tries to stand in my way. We are on to License to Kill, the movie review. And uh, I watched this one. My memories of this movie, I watched this, I, did see, I didn't see this one in theater. I saw this on mostly. Uh, TV, which is a shame I didn't wasn't able to watch it full out without all the commercial breaks. Um, I might have seen it on HBO or something, maybe. Um, but for some reason, I think I remember seeing it on TV first, which is not ideal. Uh, but it wasn't as bad. They didn't have as many commercials back then. Um, 
course, this is known uh, what the, the, the ending... Some of the things that stand out for me in this movie are the awesome uh, stunt with the... Uh, he puts the... Uh, Tim Dalton puts the uh, semi-truck on two... On, on, I don't know. Uh, how, a ton, uh, on its side, let's just say, because there's a whole bunch of wheels on its left side to avoid the missile coming at him. Um, uh, the rocket launcher. So that's a key scene that stands out. And um, also the ending song. The ending song, uh, If You Ask Me To, uh, which, surprisingly enough, was not covered by Celine Dion at the end, but another performer. Um, but Celine Dion really made the most of that song and became one of the biggest hits of our time. <laughs> one of the biggest soft rock hits uh, of our time and uh, from pretty much uh, this movie. Um, I'm watching the trailer here. It's pretty awesome. I'm going to have to put this trailer at the beginning of the uh, of this uh, of this review, um, the James Bond, the the Bond girls in this are stunning. That's another thing that stood out. Uh, the two James Bond women um, are just incredible. Um, and I'll get to the names in a minute here. See, it's good to watch the trailer because it kind of reminds you of all the key points. Um, I'll get to the cast. Uh, of course, Tim Dalton, James Bond, Robert Davey uh, as Franz, uh, Sanchez, Sanchez, uh, and Carrie Lowell, Carrie Lowell as Pam uh, Bouvier, who's gorgeous in this movie. And if that's a current picture of her, she still looks gorgeous. Um, and Talisa Soto as Lupe Lamora. Um, just gorgeous Bond girls. Um, and you had uh, the other uh, the other people in the movie that stood out. I've seen in other movies or things. Is uh, we got Everett McGill uh, as Killifer, who is a kind of a uh, American counterpart to Bond. I think he works as a CIA agent, double agent or something. He betrays Bond and uh, it works for uh, Sanchez. Uh, Sanchez is kind of the drug dealer. Like he's a big cocaine uh, kingpin. And uh, and we got Big Wayner. We got Wayne Newton himself in this movie. And uh, <laughs> he's got a couple fun lines in it where he's kind of like this uh, Vegas tycoon kind of guy. I think he, uh, no, he's not playing himself. He's a Professor Joe Butcher is his name. But he, uh, some of the, one of the Bond girls used, I think it's Carrie Lowell who plays Pam in, in the movie. Uh, she, uh, you know, tries to get information out of him, out of him and she kind of, uh, seduces him a little bit and uh he's he's like oh bless your heart 
And he's he's just so happy that when she ties him up and he yeah, you know, he gets a, he gets gets off a little bit on it. And then <laughs> there's another scene where she like takes something from him or she's passing him up on the on the road and he again he's like he's so happy about it. He's like, Oh, bless your heart <laughs> Oh, Wayne Newton's such a ham. Of course Wayne Newton whew, boy. Yeah, if you see Wayne Newton these days, you know, I know what you got to do, what you got to do to be stay young in Vegas, but, uh, boy, yeah, uh, the man's had some work done. You know, I'll always love Wayne Newton, but, man, take it easy, Wayne. Um, let's see here. Benicio Del Toro, a young Benicio Del Toro. Like, he looks like he's in his late teens to early 20s in this movie. Um, so he plays one of the henchmen there who's a piece of crap. And, uh, of course, you still got Desmond uh, Llewellyn uh, as Q hanging in there. Still doing awesome. Stand-up job as usual. And you got Robert Brown as M still. Let's see. There's another guy in here, though. Uh, Anthony Zerby, who's been in a whole bunch of movies. He's a big character actor. Uh, Milt, he plays Milton Crest. He gets his head, uh, he gets, he's, <laughs> he's helping out Robert Davy in the, in the, uh, you know, the main villain in this as a, kind of a right-hand man to help him out with, uh, I think it was like the, the planes and things like the equipment. And, uh, uh, he gets set up. And Robert Davy uh, throws him in a, uh, this is spoilers, uh, decompression chamber and turns the switch off or, or lets the pressure go up too high. And and uh, it's kind of a horror, horror kind of scene where his uh, head blows up. It gets real big and it blows up. And it's like, it was, for a second, it's a horror movie there. <laughs> So that's scene to remember in this movie as well. It's got a lot of scenes to remember. Um, this movie, um, Felix, it's strange because Felix is his CIA buddy. And he gets taken by Robert Davey. Right? And Robert Davey, he puts Felix's uh, legs down into a, uh, well, he lowers him into a shark pit, which is very Dr. Evil of him. And it's funny because they lower him down, and it's like I remember him like I thought he died in this like in this gruesome way, but he gets lowered into it, and he's like, "Yeah, you, I'll see you in hell" or something like that. And uh, but what happens is that okay, the shark takes some bites out of his legs, but then he gets pulled up. And he ends up being in the hospital, right? I think he loses one leg or something like that. But I'm like, that's weird. You'd think the doctor, the you know, the uh, Sanchez would have gone all the way and just said, okay, just eat him alive, you know, and the shark would just eat him like it, it would in that case. It would just take the whole legs and just start eating the guy alive. But he doesn't. He survives it, which is like odd, 
It's like, I don't, for one, it's weird that the Bond villain doesn't go all the way. Even though we've seen other Bond villains kill people uh, by shark underwater. But this one pulls him back out, and then he goes to the hospital, and he, he makes it. He's going to be okay. So that was kind of a, I didn't think that quite worked <laughs> like it should have. I mean, it works on a visual level. But it's like, come on, how would how could you not die from that? How would the shark stop munching on his leg? Um, the director here is John Glenn. Um, this movie felt, you know, you got to remember this was the late 80s. So this is like around the time of Lethal Weapon 2, uh, Die Hard 2, I believe. And uh, so there had already been the anti-hero action movie. Thing. And so Bond was kind of like uh, sticking out like a sore thumb here. So they had to kind of make it seem like, okay, how can we make him a little bit more edgy? You know, and that it definitely has that kind of uh, feel to it because um, it's a revenge kind of movie for Bond because he's pissed because he thinks that he's Felix is pretty much dead. Although he's not really dead, he's just in the hospital with a missing leg. Which I suppose is pretty good motivation for revenge, but it's not as strong as "Holy crud! They killed my buddy uh, by shark. His legs were eaten, and he got eaten to death." Like it's strange that they didn't go all the way. It's like you introduce that kind of a concept. I feel like you kind of have to go all the way with it, you know, because it's pretty gruesome. Um, so I feel like they kind of they pulled their punch there, which kind of weakens the motivation a little bit with Bond. But in a strange way, it still kind of works. You know, upon you know watching this again, I've seen this movie probably you know a bunch of times since the first time on TV. So I've probably seen it like six or seven times at least. But it's been a while since then. Um, so this is a good good time to really kind of go over it and give it you know my final uh, review on this and let's see here uh, I'll read you the storyline James Bond is possibly on possibly his most brutal mission yet his good friend Felix uh, uh, Leiter uh, is left near death by see near death uh, by drug baron Franz Sanchez Bond sets off on the hunt for Sanchez but not making any but, but not making I'm sorry but not everyone is happy MI6 does not feel Sanchez is their problem and strips Bond of his license to kill, hence the name of the movie, uh, making Bond more dangerous than ever. Bond gains the aid of uh, Leiter's friends, known as Pam Bouvoir, and sneaks, she looks great with short hair, it's hard to pull off short hair, and she's got amazing legs and a really cute face, and sneaks his way into the uh, drug factories, which Sanchez owns. Will Bond be able to keep his identity secret, or will Sanchez see his true Bond's true in, intentions? Um, I'm going to tell you the uh, theme song is very—I think it's by Patti LaBelle—and uh, it's a good song, but it stands out um, from all the other Bond songs. It's very. It's very 80s. It's very of its time. 
uh, that with that kind of uh, music, and uh, which is good. It's good on its own, but I feel like it's it kind of feels a little too much, a too modern. It doesn't feel classical enough. Like uh, it felt like too much like it's a modern song as opposed to a Bond song, a classical kind of not like Bond movie songs are classical, but like it, it didn't feel like it tied into Bond as much it's hard to say put it into words, but I hope you catch my drift, but it's still a good song and you know it, it still works on a weird level um but it's doesn't it's it's not in perfect sync with uh, the Bond franchise. I think again because Patti LaBelle, I don't know, it's just the way she sings is just very. Hmm, I don't know. It, it's hard to. It, she's got a great voice. It's just kind of a weird, slight mis mismatch with the kind of um, story and genre for some reason. I guess that's the best way I could, I could explain it. Um, now that being said, the DVD, um, the sound is pretty dang good. And you got to think about, like I don't have my awesome sound system anymore, my 5.1, because uh, I don't have the room for it. But I have my, <laughs> I have my little, uh, uh, my little jam speaker, which can kick out a decent amount of uh, of sound and music and uh, fills up the room pretty good on that little thing and it was kicking out some good Patti LaBelle like the whole opening it's got a good strong opening a good stunt in the beginning um, he's trying to get to Felix's wedding and he's got to do something in the, I believe it's in the air like he's Parachuting, I can't remember now. I'll have to go look for it. Let's see. Maybe I'll cover it later here. Let's see. Of course, we'll go to... Um, the trivia. And see what we got here. Um... Timothy Dalton stated in an interview about why his Bond was much darker, grittier incarnation. It was a much darker and grittier incarnation. It was because he wanted to go back to the Ian Fleming novels and capture the essence and the spirit of the character Ian Fleming created. Good on him for that. see here yeah of all the Bond films this one has the largest role for Desmond uh, Llewellyn as Q I agree he's got a couple scenes in it he's actually helping Bond in one of the mission scenes uh, as a driver or something like that so I thought that was cool because he's good in the role and he's you know been in it since pretty much the beginning let's see
it is widely and incorrectly rumored that this was Timothy Dalton's last James Bond film due to it being financially disappointing. In reality, Dalton was uh, to start in a third James Bond film after this one titled Property of a Lady, uh, written by Michael G. Wilson and Alphonse uh, Ruggiero, Ruggiero Jr. and set to start shooting in 1990, uh, with pre-production work having begun in May that year. However, legal issues with MGM beginning that year created long delays, which eventually led Dalton to announce his retirement from the role in 94. Um, yeah, those pesky legal issues. Um, they, they do get in the way of things quite a bit, mess things up. Uh, a year after his initial contract expired, paving the way for Pierce Brosnan... So I'm going into my little, my little, my little ditty from my song that I did from the last review. <laughs> he's no Brosnan, but he's the best we got. Uh, paving the way for Pierce Brosnan, casting in Goldeneye. Uh, have 95 had been, had the film been made, it would have been set in Scotland, Tokyo, and Hong Kong, and would have involved nanotechnology. That sounds pretty cool. While no director was officially attached, John Landis, Ted uh, Kachev, and John uh, Byram uh, were all under consideration. Uh, John Landis doing a uh, uh, James Bond movies. That would have been pretty wild. Of course, John Landis did uh, American Werewolf in London and Beverly Hills Cop, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> Desmond Llewellyn, uh, who played Q, later noted that this was the first time he'd made any real money out of the Bond films. That's hilarious, and that's a damn shame. Uh, that tells you how the Hollywood system works. That's come on, he should be taken care of. That's a major character in the franchise. Cheap skates. Let's see here. Wayne Cameo, Wayne Newton, uh, the Las Vegas performer, played a small part in a credited performance as a televangelist. That's right, televangelist, called Professor Joe Butcher. His character was a dig at televangelists at the time, including Jim Baker, who had been exposed during the mid-1980s as being involved in extramarital affairs and or general promiscuity. Uh, being in a Bond movie fulfilled Wayne Newton's dream. Yeah, he'd always been a Bond fan. Um, for sure. But, uh... Yeah. Yeah, that was a big deal. Mid-80s there. Uh, Jim and, yeah. Tammy Faye Baker. So, yeah, that makes sense. Also, I will add... Uh, Wayne Newton was in a, a kind of, a, a kind of a, he, well, it was like the Andrew Dice Clay action detective movie, uh, Ford Fairlane, and it's kind of a similar part, and um, I thought he was really good in that. Um, th that's an underrated movie, and uh, that was out around this time, too. A little bit after this movie, probably, yeah, 90s. 
9091 Fort Fairline. Yeah, that's such a fun movie. Uh, let's see here. Let's see. I'll read something. What else we got here? Robert Davy was taken by several thugs while on vacation in South America to an actual drug lord. Whoa! <laughs> that could that be true? I don't know. That's crazy. The man enjoyed his portrayal of a drug lord. <laughs> he was taken by several thugs while on vacation in South America. To an actual drug lord. <laughs> that's insane. It's that's really terrifying. I feel bad. It's amazing he survived it. Whew. Boy, that should be in his memoirs. Okay, at 21 years old, I called that. At 21 years old, Benicio del Toro is the youngest actor to play a villain in a James Bond film. Interesting, yeah. And he gets uh, thrown down. Uh, into a blender in this movie. He gets uh, shoved uh, kind of like Indiana Jones and Temple Doom style. He goes into like this chucker, wood chucker, metal chucker kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's not good there. The scene where Bond resigns from uh, MI6 was shot in, at Ernest Hemingway's house in Key West. Uh, that's why when M, Robert Brown, informs 007 that his license to kill is revoked, he replies, I guess this is my farewell to arms. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Good line. A nod to one of Hemingway's most famous novels. Yeah, that's great. Last James Bond film for six years. Yeah, I remember this, and I'll go this into this in my next review. It was a huge gap after this. So when Bond came back in Goldeneye, everyone I remember everyone in the theater was watching that preview for the first time, going crazy, going "Whoa!" Like that's awesome because it had been six years. It's a long time. You know, I think honestly, time has gone slower in the past. Six years now is like a couple years. <laughs> Back then, before the internet, time moves slower, I believe. Let's see here. Let's see. Um, in August 90, after the box office failure of this film in the United States, director John Glenn left Ian Productions. That's the director of this movie. Uh, 13-time Bond screenwriter Richard Maibaum uh, died on January 4th, 1991. Uh, may he rest in peace. Some called this a bloodless coup. Legal wrangling over the ownership of the James Bond character, coupled by these departures, delayed the release of the next film. In the interim, Robert, uh, producer Albert R. Broccoli retired and Timothy Dalton decided not to play the role for a third time. Yeah, that's big changes there, kiddies. That's a passing of the guard a little bit, which happens 
quite a lot. It, it does happen in uh, our beloved uh, movies as time goes by. You have a changing of the of the guard as far as the writing, um, the writing talent. Uh, they either get older or they retire, and so the next generation takes over. And uh, often they're just not quite as good as the the one before it. Or you might get a few good ones, and then uh, it's gonna it just the writing changes tremendously as far as the tone of movies and. The depth, I would say, the depth of movies change. Some for better, some for worse, mostly for worse so far that I've seen. Uh, budgets restraints were imposed as the produ producers were still paying interest on the overspending of Moonraker and 79. Wow. Uh, producer Albert R. Broccoli fell sick during the production of this movie. The thinness of the air in Mexico uh, affected his lungs and breathing, and he left the location accompanied by wife uh, Dana and daughter Barbara, who uh, he was unable to return. Who brought, I'd say Barbara has taken over the uh, Bond franchise here. He, has, uh, he was unable to return, and this was his last James Bond movie in which he was on the set. That's sad. Wow. Again, changing of the guard. Big time. Especially Albert R. Broccoli. Major overseer, producer of all the Bond movies. Uh, let's see. Let's see here. There's tons of... I mean, there's tons more I could read, but I don't want to go too long. I just want to kind of go long enough within the 30 to 40 minute range of this review. Now this is this is interesting. In 2018, Timothy Dalton admitted that after thinking of not doing a third Bond movie, he finally decided that he wanted to do a, wanted to do a final one. Until Arbert R. Broccoli told him that after the five-year gap, it would not be possible to do to, to do just one. Dalton then quit since he had no intention to play Bond for the rest of his life. Yeah, see how things can shift and change. And uh, legal troubles get all can extend the gaps between movies. Makes a difference. Bond's controversial betrayal, controversial betrayal of M, was in part a way to sidestep the fact that British that the British have no jurisdiction over a uh, Latin American drug cartel. <laughs> I'll just let that, you know, let that sink in with you. Uh, according to Robert Davey, he wrote his line, he wrote his line, uh, loyalty is more important to me than money. That's a good one. That's good. The last film of the franchise produced and released during the Cold War. At that time, Soviet communism was already being viewed as less of a threat, and any 
new possible foreign adversaries were not yet clearly recognized, which is a nice thing in a way. Uh, producers felt that a Central American dictator and drug lord would give the movie uh, a topical storyline, which was it's the most grounded, I think, of all the bonds as far as the villains more most realistic because. It's not someone trying to take over the world. It's just a drug lord guy who wants a lot of money, be a billionaire. So it definitely ties into that uh, revenge, grounded, personal feel of the movie, uh, of an angst kind of protagonist, which a lot of the protagonists at the time in action movies were, were kind of like that. Pam Bouvier, Carol Lowell, in the first is the first Bond girl to ever drink one of Bond's signature vodka martini cocktails. Wayne Newton got the role of producer Joe Butcher after sending a letter to the producers expressing his interest in a cameo because he always wanted to be in a Bond film. Director John Glenn uh, had a tough time pulling off the action stunts and huge set pieces because the budgets of the Bond films had not changed since Octopussy 83. Uh, this was mostly due to MGM's constant financial woes. Anything else jump out? Of course, this this movie mass, uh, marked the last film appearance of Felix uh, Leiter uh, until Casino Royale. Casino Royale, like I said, Royale. <laughs> Casino Royale in 2006. Let's see here. Yeah, they, they constantly recast Felix. So you don't feel as attached to his character when he gets his legs chomped in this one. Because it's a totally new Felix. John Reese davis was offered a cameo role as General Pushkin, but declined the offer as he was filming Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Good on him. This is the third uh, James Bond movie to use story elements from Ian Fleming's James Bond novel, Live and Let Die. And uh, the others being Live and Let Die. Uh, and for your eyes only. While Carrie Lowell uh, wore a wig for the scene set in the United States, a scene where uh, Bouvier cuts her hair was added so Lowell's natural short hair could be used and she pulls it off nicely all right let's see oh here we go here we go this is what I was talking about um, the closing credits song if you ask me to sung by Patti LaBelle uh, was featured on the b-side of the main title song 45 rpm single and became an unexpected minor hit 
The LaBelle song charted in a rhythm and blues top 10 and was later sung in a cover version by Celine Dion, where it became an even bigger hit. Yep, absolutely. Oh, this is this ties in this next one ties in even more of of the uh, time that this was made uh, with you know Lethal Weapon two and Die Hard two and Die Hard one and all those kind of movies that, which I loved I was totally into at the time still am uh, um, I was like let's see. I still pretty much a kid. I think I was right. Must have been 12, 13 years old around this time. Um, this film marked the retirement of John Barry. That's sad. He was so good. From composing scores and songs for the franchise. Michael Kamen took over. And Michael Kamen uh, did the Lethal Weapon uh, soundtracks. Um, Die Hard, whole bunch of '80s action movie. Um, uh, films. He was he was infamous for those. He's no longer with us, as well. Let's see. So he took over composing duties on the film, um, as John Barry was undergoing throat surgery at the time. Ouch. Creative differences with the band. Aha. On the Living Daylights allegedly also contributed. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Which Aha did the last opener in the Living Daylights. Um, Michael Kamen used a lot of like metal clanking kind of mu uh, effects in his soundtracks, which is kind of like his signature style. It's hard to describe it until you hear it. Go check out Die Hard and Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. Uh, let's see here. Timothy Dalton got homesick while filming in Mexico. He said that he really missed a good pint of, of bitter. <laughs> well, it's a culture shock. You stay in Mexico for longer than a week or two. You're gonna have that's gonna happen. It's just it's it's different enough from uh, the United States and and probably uh, England that uh, it's just a strong contrast sometimes. You know, and weather and climate and uh, things of that nature. Oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It wasn't Patti LaBelle at the beginning. It's Gladys Knight. So here it is. So you have to forgive me on that. Gladys Knight's title song is the longest song of all. <laughs> the Bond songs. In the UK, it peaked at the number six position on the charts. I'm sorry, I'm getting my singers mixed up. As a Christian soul singer, Knight apparently objected to having to sing a song with the word kill in it but eventually she conceded uh yeah the 
the song is apparently based on the horn line from Gold uh, from the Goldfinger title song, and consequently royalty payments were allegedly made to relevant personnel. Hmm. Uh, the music video of the song was directed by Daniel uh, Kleinman, who succeeded Mar uh, Maurice Binder as the title designer on Goldeneye. So, yeah, th and this is why it kind of stands out so much, this title song. Uh, you know, Glass Knight, um, she's a soul singer. So it has a lot of, like, soulness to it. And that's, you know, some of the other bo older Bonds do too, but... Bond music songs, but this one really does. So it really stands out. Um, let's see. While in production, various newspapers reported that this would be the most violent Bond yet, uh, and would keep, which uh, would, and would trying to keep up with. Boy, they need to rewrite this uh, film yet, and would trying to keep up with the mega violence of such recent popular action fare as Lethal Weapon in 87 and Die Hard in 88. This was the first Bond film to score a PG-13 rating due to its violent content. Well, you got a dude's head exploding in a uh, pressure chamber, and you got a dude's legs being bit almost off. Um... And uh, what's his name? Benicio del Toro gets thrown down the wood chipper. <laughs> there's some blood there. Yeah, yeah. There's some uh, violence. Kind of gory. Um, so yeah, and then there I go. You know, ties in. I was just telling you, Lethal Weapon, late '80s, and Die Hard, also all that. Again, you know, it's always Bond is always kind of like. You see this time, time and time again, and I think it's to the the, the franchise detriment um, that it it kind of wants to emulate the other movies of the time when it really shouldn't do that. I think it works best when Bond sets the standard, when Bond is just freaking Bond, and any everything else can shoo off because it's James Bond. It's its own thing. It's its own world. It doesn't need to impress you by trying to think it's these other other movies. You know, whenever they do that, it's like an insecurity problem. Uh, it's fine to borrow a little bit, a little bit, in small doses from other movies of the, of the current time. But you got to be really careful and just can barely pepper it in. Because, again, this is a, this is a running problem. Like, this is why I didn't like uh, Quantum of Solace that much, because th they were trying to be like the Bourne identity and Paul Greengrass and shaking the camera a whole bunch. And um, I just didn't like that at all. Um, Bond doesn't have to be shaky cam. It, it's not shaky cam. It's clear. Let's take a look at this we're observing this fight happening in front of us. It's not like we, we're not in the middle of the fight. We're not like participating in the fight. You know, Bond sets the standard and the, the sooner they realize that and embrace that and have the cojones to really embrace that, 
the better off the Bound franchise will be. And that is my gun. That's what I'm, I'm sticking to it. That's what I'm saying. Um, first, James Bond movie to include tobacco warnings in its closing credits. This was in the form of the United States Surgeon General warning smoking of tobacco cigarettes and cigars occurs in numerous James Bond movies. And this is the only one of them to include a health warning. The film featured product placement of the Philip Morris Company of the Philip Cook Company's Lark Cigarettes. And you really don't see a lot of smoking in movies these days, which, you know, that's controversial. Um, I understand uh, you don't want people and kids and people growing up to get into smoking uh, through movie characters and movies by having it look cool. However, I will say this. I never got into smoking, and I watched a, a whole bunch of movies where the characters smoke. It never bugged me. Um, because I always had that. Uh, it's like, yeah, I could separate it. Like, yeah, it looks cool on screen, but I knew how detrimental it was in real life. Um, as a look, I like it. I think it's fun. I think, like, when you have a character like Wolverine smoke a cigar... I just add something like when Arnold smokes a cigar once in a while in his movies, it just adds to the image of the the masculine kind of toughness, and I I like it. I do. Now that being said, everything in moderation. Um, again, I've never felt the need to smoke or smoke cigar cigars. Um, now if they had people smoking all the time in every movie, I'd say okay, we got a problem here. But once in a while, it's not going to kill anything. Um, but I, I guess I could see why they don't want characters, you know, because people, kids are, and teenagers are, uh, you know, easily influenced. And, okay, okay, this is why we can't have nice things. You know, that's my opinion. Um, let's see here. To pray, to, I'll, I'll wrap this up here. Uh, to portray Sanchez... Uh, Robert Davey researched on the uh, Colombian drug cartels and how to do a Colombian accent. Uh, he said, uh, no, I'm sorry, and since he was method acting, he would stay in character offset. After Davey read Casino Royale for preparation, he decided to turn Sanchez into Sanchez, Sanchez into a mirror image of James Bond based on Ian Fleming's descriptions of Le, Ch Le Chiffre. Sorry, I'm not saying this right. Le Chiffre. Which is, yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. He would stay in character offset. Le Chiffre. I think Le Chiffre. That's how you say it. Pronounce that one. The project was originally titled... License revoked, <laughs> and teaser artwork was produced with this title, uh, along with the reasons by changing the title was to avoid confusion with the 81 James Bond no uh, novel, License Renewed, written by John Gardner, uh, who ended up writing a novel based on this film as well. License Renewed means the opposite of License Revoked. Another reason for the change was the License Revoked denote, uh, denote losing 
one's driving privileges and the U.S. taglines for license revoked included. Uh, it's just, uh, as uh, as Murtaugh said in Lethal Weapon, uh, Lethal Weapon 2, I believe, uh, it's, your license has just been revoked after he blows the dude away. Um, you're looking at the world's most wanted man and dismissed, disgraced, dishonored, deadly. In the movie, when M says to, to James Bond, your license to kill is revoked, both titles are refer, uh, referenced at the same time. After a minor controversy as to whether the British or American spelling license uh, with a C instead of the a, a S, or license with an S at, uh, towards the end of it, would be used in the title, the British spelling won out. That's interesting. That is interesting. I never quite noticed that. Um, so I'll wrap this up. Uh, I think this was a fun one. Uh, I'll give this review, uh, this movie, a... Hmm. Ah, give it a 7.5 out of 10. It's pretty good. It's not quite good enough to be an 8. I think something's missing in it. I think... I don't know what, um, but I give it a, a sentimental bias of an eight out of ten because I like the Bond women in it, and uh, it had some great stunts. The stunt with the airplane. Uh, I, I try to. I wish they explained it in this one. I'll have to watch that again. I, I, there's a great scene where he's parachuting in the beginning, and it's a good setup for the the title sequence. Um, so there's some good stunts in it. Uh, it's close to an 8 out of 10 for me. But it's not quite there. But it's it's a bit... Slightly above average Bond. Um, I think part of it... As I've seen it a lot on TV. Um, I enjoy it a little bit more than... Um, uh, the previous uh, Timothy Dalton one. Uh, but I, I like that one as well. Um, but again, there was definitely room for improvement in the script and this. And a lot of... Um, uh, there's there's a lot of suspension of disbelief where Robert Davies' character, Sanchez, uh, didn't know that Bond was you know British agent or Bond was going to screw him over. Or it was it, When it was pretty obvious that Bond was... Uh, you know, working against him, and uh, he's kind of plain dumb, but it kind of like got worn thin after a while. So there's some disbelief there. Um, other than that, uh, again, the weird stuff with the guy's legs, like why don't you go all the way and kill the guy, kill Felix, instead of like if you have him, if a shark's eating his legs, and then the Bond villain pulls him up, or whatever. That's kind of weak. Like, again, commit to the full evil of a James Bond villain. And keep the motivation stronger with James Bond that way. So those those are my problems, keeping it from an 8 out of 10 movie or, or more. Um, but, uh, yeah, sentimentally, it's just, it's always been there on TV. And it's just kind of like... I'm so familiar with this one. 
and as far as the Timothy Dalton bond goes, and just a little bit better than uh, the Living Daylights, although that could be argued. A lot of people like the Living Daylights more than License to Kill, you know, which I'll, I'll give them that. But I think visually, visually, I enjoy this one more. I'm more of a, I'm an artist, so I'm more of a visual guy, and I like the aesthetic of this one because of the just the production value was higher. I thought I thought um, Timothy Dalton had more of a chance. He he, this is his second run at the character, so he felt. Uh, I thought he felt more like the character in this one, and uh, and the Bond girls are smoking hot, and uh, and the song at the end. If you ask me to, I'm like that's. I mean that was such a big that became such a big song in our pop culture, like you can't go anywhere without hearing that stink Celine Dion song. It's like that's amazing to think that it's pretty much from this Bond movie that we have that <laughs> from a Timothy Dalton Bond movie. I tell you, the power of the movies is something else. Um, if you have a chance, I highly recommend you check out, and I think they're still on iTunes, um, the Hollywood Saloon and uh, their James Bond episodes, and it, it's. It's funny how they go over uh, and they repeat the sound clips of, uh, of Sanchez uh, quite numerously of the character saying Sanchez. Sanchez! <laughs> it's pretty great. Uh, so yeah, check out the Hollywood Saloon on iTunes, the James Bond. Uh, they, only like, they got like two or three James Bond episodes, but they sum up all, their, all the Bond episodes up till I think, Casino Royale, I think. And um, they just, they're, they, they're great. They knew their stuff so well. And they, they go into it so much more in detail. Um, where I'm doing like each individual movie, they kind of sum up all the movies in like a, a few, just a few episodes, a few uh, podcasts, you know. But they're really passionate about Bond. They really know their stuff. Uh, and uh, check them out but uh till then i will see you in the next i will retamble will return to review uh uh james bond and golden eye and the return and uh, the beginning of pierce brosnan and uh thanks for listening i had fun I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Killing me won't stop anything, Sanchez. See you in hell! <laughs> this private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You're going after Sanchez, aren't you? Are you crazy? to kill is revoked. Effective immediately. In my business, you prepare for the unexpected. Problem solved. I'm more of a problem eliminator.
This is where it ends, Commander. He's got to be stopped. 